Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. I just want to take a step back from last time. I wanted to just get in, you know, plug in a little bit, you know, with texts. So we'll pick up with the texts in just a minute. The um, the flood account has um, it's a very inter. There's history here that I just want to quickly share with you. And it is the flood accounts, you know, are very popular throughout the world. Um, I I remember years ago there was a horrible rain in the middle in the middle of the country, and this the, and the Mississippi River overflowed in a number of places, not the least of which was St. Louis, and somebody um, took a picture from. I'm not sure it was a helicopter or the top of a building, I don't know, of the flooded area. And in this picture, you looked out and everything you saw was flooded. I mean, I don't know how many high feet high it was, but you could see houses, the water had crept up part of the way up on the houses, all the roads. I mean, it was in, an, in a sort of a suburban area. Um, and... Everything you saw was flooded. So we have to get it. From that, I learned something. In the in antiquity, when there were horrible floods, what was flooded? In, in from the perspective of the people who were recording this, interpreting it, because of their religion, their relationships with God, whatever. Okay. So why they assumed that the whole world was flooded? And the question is, why would that come up? Because it is a, I can tell you that in the material we're going to be talking about and some of the parallel stuff, the whole world was flooded. So, so why would that be, Tybal? Well, even much later, people thought the world was flat because when it's so difficult to get out of your locality or even your region and compare what it is, I mean, even psychologically, we could liken it to children growing up in their families. They think that's normal for everybody, their own particularly family constellation, because that's all they could see. So to think that the world might be different, however many miles past any traveler could go, or even if a traveler said, no, no, it's like this, the traveler might not be believed. I mean, the question is, to me, of course, that's how they would interpret it, because it's only now with mobility and image taking and all that in science that we know things are different. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to think about it for for people back then did not travel. Some did, right? Merchants did, Uh, but normal folks didn't. And, and, you know, especially in flat areas, right? That's exactly the point. So the world is flooded. And this you see, obviously, in the Bible accounts, and I use that word plural because, as we mentioned last time, there are actually two discrete flood accounts that have been brought together here. Um, the, but a, a typical, no, I would say an influential flood story in the ancient Near East is the Gilgamesh account that came out of Babylonia. It's in Akkadian, the language that was written in, it was written sometime 
in the late second century BCE. So that's somewhere between 1200 and 1000 BCE, which is close enough to the biblical period to, if you allow for time for these things to percolate throughout the area, uh, it's close enough to presume that that would be something that would be picked up on um, by, you know, some biblical author or authors. Now, the fact is, speaking of a flood in Eretz Yisrael at that point in time, is highly unlikely if you think about Eretz Yisrael, right? I mean, there are very, unless you're living perhaps in the Galilee, in the north, in the Amek, Israel, right? You're a big, uh, where you have a big area, right? Maybe you could, if a horrible rain came and it was all flooded or the, or, or the, 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 you know, the swamps, right? Could be flooded. But the point is in those areas, you see mountains in the distance, right? You see big hills. You've been there. I've been there. And so it's not like you look forever and there's nothing on the other side. So it's difficult to say the world was flooded when you got mountains, you know, uh, 10 kilometers north or 10 kilometers to the east or something. So it, it, they know, for example, I, I was, well, I don't know, once I, I read up on this, just uh, floods in the Middle East, I forgot what the source was, but it was based on archaeology, no, even more so, not just archaeology, but soil science, okay? And, and uh, geography, looking at the air from the air and analyzing, you know, different areas. There, were, there may have been a major flood in the Jordan River Valley, right? That rift, not a valley, but the Jordan River rift. There may have been a flood in 7000 BCE. Okay. Now to presume that that account would be transmitted down for so many millennia when you don't really find it in sources that old. You know, it's hard to believe. So this Babylonian account seems to be a a um, a good uh, candidate for a story that became that was transmitted throughout the area, especially given the fact you have the Assyrians who became dominant in Eretz Israel for a number of centuries, and then you have the Babylonians themselves. So sometime during that period, you know, and and plus. Egyptians were going back and forth through that area from the 15th century down into the 13th, uh, no, even down to the time of King Solomon. And they were going up north to fight, to keep the, to keep the bad guys from the north from encroaching on their territories. So, I mean, there was a lot of transference of ideas, let's say, from the middle of the, uh, the middle of uh, the second millennium, all the way down to the time of the destruction of the first temple for a good thousand of years, thousand years. A lot of stuff is going back and forth, not just goods that are being trans, that are being transferred for sale, but ideas and so forth. So keep that in mind. All right. Then I'll, so let me get on now, but before we move. Okay. Bert. I was just going to say that the Nile Delta which uh, is at the northern part of Egypt, uh, which, of course, was close to uh, Israel, uh, regularly floods. It floods every year. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so that may have had some effect on as well. 
but as you will see, <clears throat> this particular uh, text, it's an Akkadian account. It is very, very similar. <clears throat> That's the point. Details are very similar. So this is the Gilgamesh may have been a historical person. He may have been a king uh, in the Sumerian city-state of Uruk sometime in the 2000s BCE. You know, during at some point during the third millennium BCE, and so he became a kind of a heroic, almost demigod, apparently, uh, in the traditions that came out of there. And so this is a story of him. The, the Gilgamesh epic is his story, but better embedded within it is a story of this guy called Utmapishtim, and Utmapishtim was a righteous man. And this is a guy who survived the flood. And in this account, I'm going to share with you some of the interesting parallels that scholars who have analyzed that flood story in the, you know, with, with our flood account, uh, it's fascinating. And this is just to give you an example, again, talking about the methodology that we use to try to understand sources and date them and figure out you know, what the meaning and how are they similar? How are they different? I mean, this is a good example of some serious research that has resulted in some very, very compelling uh, parallels that are widely accepted today by the, uh, in the scholarly world. Okay. So, so the, the flood, so you have Noah and Utnapishtim. So what is the extent of the flood worldwide? What's the cause? According to Noah's things, man's corruption or uh, Hamas, which is violence, right? Some bad things, man's wickedness. According to the, in the, in the Gilgamesh account of Utnapishtim, it was man's sins. For whom was it intended? All right. All of humankind. Well, no more than that, actually. Although in, in this instance, it doesn't talk about the animals. Oh, no, yes, it does. Just a second. We'll get there. So it's all all creatures in both accounts. And in Utmapishtim, it's one city in all of all accounts. So who brought it on? Who sent the floods? Hashem, of course, in, in, the, in our story. And, of course, you'll see it's either Adonai or Elohim, right? And again, as we saw in the creation account, that, that distinguishes two separate sources. So, but it's the, a god or the assembly of gods. Name of the hero, and there is a hero. Noah Utnapishtim. What is the nature of the hero's character? They're both righteous. All right. What's what's the means of announcement? It, well, Noah gets it direct from God. Utnapishtim gets it in a dream. Are they ordered to build a boat or an ark? Or some float, some floating thing. Okay. Yes. What is the height of the boat? In our tradition, it's three stories. In the Utnapishtim story, it's six stories. How many compartments? Many compartments. How many doors? One door. How many windows? At least one. What's the outside coating? Pitch. All right. What's the shape of, of this uh, item? Well, to the our account, it's rectangular. According to the Utnapishtim story, it's square. Who are the human messengers? 
family members only with Noah, family and a few others. What is the means of the flood? Well, in our account, it's the ground and heavy rain. And in the other one, it's heavy rain. What's the duration of the flood? Well, here we got different traditions. By us, it could be 40 days or it could be a hundred and well over almost a year or 40 days, 150 days. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Or here is their difference in the, in the Uthmapishtim study. It's only six. Now, uh, how did they test to find out if there was land? They used birds, right? Okay. What kind of birds? Okay, so we have two different accounts. So in one account, it's a raven. And in the other account, it's doves, right? In the Utnapishtim, it's a dove, a swallow, and a raven. And what was the landing spot for the ark? In our account, it's a mountain. In the Utnapishtim account, it's a mountain. Now, was it, was, was the, were there animal sacrifices afterwards? In one of our accounts, yes, by Noah. And in the other one, yes, by Utnapishtim. And were they both blessed after the flood? Yes. So you can see, I mean, when you get down to this kind of a nitty-gritty thing, you see how there is a lot of similarities here. And when you get evidence like that, you have to say, yeah, you know, the older tradition somehow got filtered down. But, of course, it was totally recast within the biblical tradition. Again, it's this whole notion of repurposing ancient traditions that come out of even pagan cultures. We began to talk about this last night in our class, last night about the Psalms, and then again, it's relevant here, and you're, that's going to pop up a lot in, in, this, in the discussions we're going to have, this notion of repurposing. Okay? So, any questions? Uh, which came first? The Gilgamesh or Torah? What? Which, which came first? The Gilgamesh story or Torah story? I mean, in terms of when they were written. Yeah, I mean, when they were written. I don't know. Nobody, remember. No, we, we know, we can guess, scholars suggest that these uh, traditions were written down sometime probably, it's when you have kings, right? When you have a monarchy, you start recording things. It's probably sometime during the reign of David, maybe even better Solomon, that these things began to get be written down by us. So that would be a full, you know, couple of centuries after the Babylonian story. Okay, and now the Babylonian story was written in Akkadian which is a very ancient language, which actually, that's amazing. I just happened to look it up in my uh, Anchor Bible Dictionary, uh, and they noted there in the article that Akkadian was used, like, thirds began, like, third, cent, third millennium BCE, and continued to be in use down even into the first century BCE. Of course, with diminishing as time went on. And it's, it's an Eastern Semitic language, which means it would be in the far reaches of what would be the Babylonian or Assyrian empires. So, I mean, it gets transferred there. And ultimately, as they conquer those things, you know, that, that gives impetus for some of the details to be passed down. Okay. 
Um, this is all, you know, I mean, this is the best we can put together. But when you have such a, a, a similarity between accounts, you can't ignore that. You just can't ignore that. Of course, now we have to deal with the question of why, you know, you have two coexisting accounts in Hebrew, in the biblical traditions. And, you know, why why do we have this cut and paste job that we're going to see becomes very, very <laughs> cutty and pasty as, as we move through it? Okay. Uh, just as a thought, just as a kind of an overriding thought, I have to, we have to assume that the redactors, the guys who did the cutting and pasting at some point in time, when we don't know, it could, I'm not going to even guess. Okay. We don't know. A lot of redacting took place in Eretz Yisrael after the return of the Babylonian exile in the middle of the sixth century BCE. Or the, you know, that part, that time. <clears throat> so it's, it's very, it could have happened then, but we don't know for sure. Um, but why would you, uh, make an effort to do this? This is something we need to consider. I, I may have mentioned it before, but keep this in mind. Why would you find different sources suddenly getting stuck together? Like, why do you have the two creation accounts? Why do you clearly have two flood accounts and they're both preserved? Okay. Uh, this is a little review, but maybe some of us don't recall what we had talked about before. Okay. For Bert and then Tybel. Uh, is it possible that these represent different traditions and they were trying to unite the traditions together? So everybody got their piece. Yes. It's probably true. And we can talk about even time wise when that might have happened. Um, because we know that after the destruction of the Northern Kingdom, there were numbers of people in the southern part of that. This is talking seven, about 720 BCE, right? A good hundred and some years before the fall of Jerusalem, right? So <clears throat> a lot of them fled south into Judea, what, what came Judah, right? They fled from Israel because the Northern Kingdom really had that title. They flew, they fled from Northern, from Israel down south into Judah, into Jerusalem. And undoubtedly there was, there were priests and scribes, you know, holy people who brought with them holy traditions. And afterwards, the reality that was faced was you've got these two somewhat discrete groups of Israelites who have to be somehow brought together. So everybody gets a piece of it. What? So everybody gets a piece of it. Sense, you know, I mean, granted, the 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 so, the Judah traditions are going to become, in terms of practice, the dominant ones, but you just can't ignore these other people that speak your same language, believe in the same God, albeit a little differently. You know, and, and, and so they, they, they come together. So that's one reason to preserve the, the, to create a unity, uh, you know, when it's, where it's necessary. All right. So that's one reason. The second reason, however, is especially in this account, as we go through it, the two accounts are so different. Yes. But on the other hand, each one has pieces of information that are not found in the other one. And so by bringing them together, you actually can create a flow of, of, an, of an account that otherwise you wouldn't have. 
they knew that these traditions contradicted each other. We're going to see. I mean, they were smart people. They couldn't have just simply blown that off. But there are some interesting details that one will bring in that the other one will not. And so even at the risk of being uh, redundant and contradictory, they're there. Okay. But it's anyway, you can see this actually as, as, as this develops. And there's some very blatant differences that are really interesting. Okay. All right. So that's by way of background. So let's, let's take a step back. Rabbi? Rabbi? Sorry, Tybal. Yeah. Okay. So your case is so compelling when you went through doors, windows, pitch, whatever, that it's not just an event that human beings through psychology interpreted similarly that one derived from the other. My question when you were making that, and I'd never thought about this before, is at least in my experience, supersessionism is a dirty word because in a way it's ours that gets taken and repurposed in ways that, that deny our reality. Do you see this as the Israelites supersessionism with other forms of Near Eastern religion? To you, is this religious too when you look at it having thought about it a lot or is it cultural no no there's no question it's religious i mean one of the remember one of the efforts that exists throughout the biblical period is to um tear israelites away from existing idolatry right The, the text of the prophets down to jeremiah and ezekiel are very clear on this that there was rampant, uh, pag- you know, idolatry in the north as well as the south. I mean, in the north you had golden calves, right? In two two different temples with a golden calf in each one. Okay, so I mean that's an image. You know, there's a disagreement as to what those calves represented. Some will say that they were in the, in the Torah. I mean, in, I mean, in the Bible, in the Bible, in the Book of Kings, they're clearly they are idols and they are anathema. They are horrible. And the northern kingdom was destroyed because of them. Okay. All right. Now, there's no question that a young bull, which what it really was, is a depiction of a god. Okay. Baal was depicted as a young bull. It's not, not uncommon. You have Apis in the in Egypt, the same thing, a young bull. You know, vibrant, powerful, okay, especially for an agricultural society. On the other hand, um, some suggest that actually you find you have etchings in stones in Assyrian structures that show a god riding on the back of a, of a young bull. So it's essentially a kind of a mode of transportation. And if that's the case, then it's simple, then, then it becomes similar, actually not too different from the Kruvim, the cherubs in the Jerusalem temple, where, which was God's throne. God rides on the, and in fact, that's Ezekiel's image, right? His, his, his prophecy. God is there riding on this charity comprised, this, this chariot, comprised of angels. So, I mean, that notion then means that the calves were not really gods. They were modes of 
transportation for the for the for Hashem. But it's not clear, okay, because the South became more and more sensitive to any kind of idolatrous practice or hints of idolatry as time went on, because they 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 were scared out of their wits, and especially after the return from the exile, the people who came back to Jerusalem. There's no evidence that they had idolatry at all because they were they were they were purged of that by the experience of the two destructions. So if yes, my answer to you yes is yes indeed the effort was made is increasingly to get rid of any con- connection to to deme- let's put it this way to demean debunk and destroy idolatry to the best of their ability. However, in the process, when you deal with some of the earlier traditions, there's no question that ancient pagan ideas are being repurposed. They're being stripped away from their uh, pagan, uh, from details that associate them with paganism, and they're being taken over, okay, by by the Israelites, Stripped of idolatry. So, for example, God's appearance at Sinai. I mean, that critical moment, right? There's thunder and lightning, and the earth is shaking, and he's on a mountain, and this is going crazy, right? Look at the depiction. It's very similar to the way Baal was presented in some of the Baal traditions. There's no question. But what is this? What, what, what did the, the, this is an earlier tradition, okay? So what is it that that the that the author of those accounts, the redactor or whomever, was trying to get across? You want to see power? No, it's not in Baal. All these phenomena are simply manifestations of nature that our God is operating. Okay, and so they're trying to strip it away. But then some of you have heard me say this on a few occasions. You get down to um, Elijah the prophet and his vision of God at Mount, at the same Mount Sinai. And we're ta- this is about, what is it, 850, give or take BCE, when he operated, okay? In that account, which is influenced by, this is the Book of Kings, influenced by Deuteronomic antipathy, radical antipathy toward, toward uh, idolatry, okay? They, that, that account explicitly says, God is not in the wind. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the lightning. Where is God? We talked about this in class last night. Still small voice, whatever you want to call it, right? That line. God is not in. So it's basically debunking the Exodus concept of God. God does not come, or unless you want to say there's a difference because God needed to put on the big show because there were 603,550 men at the base of that mountain with their wives and their grandparents and everybody. You know, three million people, God had to put on a big show. That's why he did that. And But it doesn't explain that that way, you know. But it's amazing that, that, that the Book of Kings would actually have this statement that sort of de- deflates the the impact of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. I mean, it's wild if you think about it. Okay, but but there you go. Because as a later as a later expression of monotheism, 
they want the Deuteronomic tradition to strip away as much of this idolatrous stuff. Keep it clean, as clean as possible. But there was a limit because you still had certain elements that were just embedded within the tradition of the people. And if you pulled them away, it would weaken their effort. So they live with these things in spite of it. So they put both of them together. You read the Bible, right? Both the Sinai account for giving Torah and Elijah's Sinai experience, they're both there. One seems to be debunking the other. It doesn't matter. Both true. And you go figure it out. Okay. So these are the dilemmas of the that the historical experience of the Israelites, that their leaders, their religious leaders, their their kings, right, their scribes, the priests, whoever, that they had to deal with. All right, evolution, evolution of monotheism. That's what we're talking about. Okay, Bert and Mark. Just very quickly, uh, you may be dealing with this at a later point, but you're talking about Torah as a historical human document. And I'm wondering where the divinity and where Natan Torah comes in, uh, because we're not talking about it as God dictated it into the ear of Moses, but uh, historical work and the the... I don't know if now is the time to discuss that, but I would hope in this class at some point you would discuss a divinity what, if if there is one. I can only say that's a matter, they're talking about a matter of faith. Okay? And you can bifurcate faith from, right? Or not. Uh, I live, this is my personal feeling, and it's my faith. I believe that the the word of God, whatever that means, right? We talked about that last night. But the word of God resonates throughout the Bible. But it resonates through the interpretation of people who, who, who were in touch with these higher principles, which is, in a sense, God talking to them, or sensitive to them, okay? And who, who brought these together to create the foundation of monotheism. So I believe that that, that that is a process that happened. It's the whole notion of, you know, that God, before God created a disease, he already put the world, the and it was up to the people to find, to grab that, to open the minds, grab the cure, and then apply it to the disease. And that can apply to, they applied it to mon, to uh, poly, to paganism and, and the rise of monotheism, if you will. So the, the, the answers are there. It's just up to us to be able to, to pull them out. And then and last, given last night, you will see at the very end of that chapter in, in, in Psalms, that's going to be part of the answer. That the human says, I got to work on it. I, I accept it. But, you know, I really got to work on it. And that's the point. So if we can open our our souls, our minds, our thoughts, and understand the expressions of, of God's presence that we can sense, right? That we talked about last night, Hashamayma Saprim Kavodel, right? The heavens speak the glory of God. That's one example of that. But there are many. 
So the point is, we see sparks of the divine that exist. We have these profound eternal values that, that ultimately through Judaism, Islam, and Christianity picked up and they have interpreted their own ways. But ultimately, many other faith traditions, leaders picked up on these things, even if they are pagan, some of them. But they picked up on these ideas. I mean, you listen to the, the way the Native Americans talk about their God. It sounds very Jewish, right? This great God and, and, and it's a very powerful force in their lives. So, um, so that's my way of dealing with it. Okay. Some people say it's a great mystery, but I have to make this leap of faith because otherwise everything is meaningless. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I, I gave, <clears throat> When we were living in Germany, you know, for those five months, five times, five consecutive years, I gave some drashot in shul, in our shul in Germany. I spoke, of course, in English. The most, but 95% of the people there understood it. So the, the, the 5%, the, the person next to them would translate. Okay. But I gave a sermon once and I said, my analysis of, of Jewish intellectual and spiritual history is, I counted 16 different concepts of God that have, in, that one can trace, starting with the most ancient traditions of the Bible up till today. Okay. Just 16? Just 16. That's all <laughs> more that I, that I didn't even pick up on. These are the things that my little pea brain picked up on because I'm not a theologian. I'm not a professional theologian. Okay. I spend more time reading the text than I do, you know, trying to figure out and, you know, the, I don't try to figure out the inconsistencies. I'm happy with my answers. Okay. Anyway. All right. So that's the answer. I have said, I believe that there's sanct, there's Kedusha. To me, that is the basic raison d'etre of the Jewish people to spread Kedusha throughout the world. Kedusha, meaning the the aspiration toward divine principles for the world and for oneself. So there you go. I've revealed, I've opened up my soul. This is not the first time I've said this. And I'm not a professional theologian. I believe fully that there is a God. I just fully believe that we cannot fully comprehend that God because all we got is a little tiny brain that sits up here. That's it. <laughs> if we're smart enough, we can read read the hints in the world. Read the world. See what it says. Okay. And draw conclusions. That's my answer. All right, Mark. Yeah. Before there were uh, books in our tradition, it, it, the Israelites and other peoples, even in the modern times, carried their stories. Uh, in in passing them along verbally from one generation to another. A good example is the Ethiopian Jews who kept their genealogy by memorizing it uh, generation and generations previous. So there could be multiple strands of uh, of storytelling that go into the Torah when they're written down, and some of them... um, the strand might have been broken, something added to it, or something detracted from it to to pass it forward because of memory, you know, memory loss. Yeah. Uh, so that could be 
uh, a reason for multiple versions, which were eventually redacted into two versions. You got to remind, remember, that's a valid, very valid point. You got to remember, Eretz Israel is a small country, but I guarantee you, people who are living in the Negev, and they were back then. I mean, if you if you were in, let's say, Beersheba, a very ancient city in biblical times. And another guy was living up north in the Galil, in the Galilee somewhere, okay? Your lifestyle, your perception of the world is completely different from the guy who's living in the desert, right? I mean, there, yes, if you, ball, if you are all part of this monotheistic tradition, sure, a lot of commonality, but still, there are going to be differences. And the stories that you tell, I mean, you both may have heard of a flood, you know, but how you understand it is going to be completely different. And how you transmit it, it's going to, and the story you told would be different. Because people tell stories that relate to their own place where they live, right? And they also have stories about where you live somewhere else. People who live from people, about people who live elsewhere. And, but your view of the people who live elsewhere is going to be shaped by the perspective, the perspective that you have, right? As, as a person who lives where you live. So that's exactly correct. Remember this, the Talmud, no, I'm sorry, the Mishnah. There is to this day a dispute among rabbinic scholars of rabbinic Judaism. Okay. The, was the Mishnah published in writing or orally? Remember the rabbis talk about Torah Shabbat Peh, right? The oral tradition. That was given at Sinai at the same time as the written tradition, according to their faith. And, and I mean, it, in a sense, there's a truth behind it because there were a lot of things that were passed on orally in antiquity, just mark just as you've said. So there's some truth to that. So there, there obviously were interpretations of the Torah traditions when as, but they, everything there was evolving. That's the whole point. And the rabbis didn't necessarily comprehend the evolution as a process, as, as a system, a system, systematic process. But but nonetheless, they, they know that these things happen. So they the rabbis talk about oral teaching, yes? And and according to, the interesting thing is this. Read the Talmud. I challenge you to find me a, a, a reference in the Talmud, Bavli and Yerushalmi, both Talmuds, where a rabbinic, a, a citation from a rabbi or anything is said he wrote or we read the word kra read a written text and a read text you know that means that which is read okay and what are they talking about the bible all right so Professor Saul Lieberman, Allah Shalom, with whom I studied for three years at the seminary, one of the greatest Talmud sages who ever lived, right? This is a guy who knew Bavli and Yerushalmi by heart. He knew Midrash. He knew codes. The guy, I mean, he was an amazing sage, okay? Anyway, he was the guy who said the Mishnah was trans when it says the Mishnah was published. What does publish mean? Made public. Lieberman's argument is that means it was read aloud officially in the academy of Rabbi Judah the Prince, 
before the sages and preceded by this is the legal compilation that we are following. This is it, guys. And they read it aloud. They, they said it out loud. It was memorized over time because that's, that's a tradition that requires constant nurturing. And over time, it became weaker and it was started to be written down. Okay. So, I mean, but there's an argument about that. But the fact is embedded within the rabbinic tradition is exactly what you said, that a lot of stuff was memorized. I mean, I knew a guy years ago, a cook, there were a husband and wife who were cooks at the and at Camp Ramah. He, they were Yemenites. He knew the Bible by heart. <clears throat> not a, he was not a genius. He was a cook. That's all he did was cook food. But you ask him, you, you give him a citation from any book, Chronicles. Go to the book, who studies the book of Chronicles? Okay, the last books of the, of the Bible. Begin a verse, he'll finish it for you. Okay, because that was the tradition, and the man has an amazing memory. It's possible if he were raised in the United States, he could have become a genius and a professor, you know, a great professor of something, who knows what, but he was raised in Yemen and then Israel, and, you know, that was his culture. It's all he knew. I mean, the point is, yes, I'm going, this is a digression, I understand, but we're talking about methodologies here, right, and the development of traditions. So, yes, memorization was a tool in the transmission of traditions in antiquity. Um, and, of course, over time, the forces worked that made it necessary to write things down. Okay, especially when you're dealing with uh, changing cultural situations or changing political situations or changing, changing economic positions. Usually you will find, I mean, I've studied some legal codes throughout, you know, throughout the Middle Ages. When a new king came to power, he would he would put put out a law code. It didn't happen all the time, but it happened frequently. There were these kings in different times, different periods, who ruled very powerfully, and they had a tradition of being legal people, and they would make sure that the laws they wanted to be followed were written down. And you have new law codes that develop. In, this is in the late Roman Empire. It's in the traditions of various European countries. And the same thing happens with our sources, that they ultimately we, we have our own law codes as, as Jews. <clears throat> the, the, the traditions, the development of these things have been traced. You know, we have a lot of ideas as to how that happened. But written law codes, written commentaries, and we ended up with, you know, go look at it, open up a Talmud. Just open up a Talmud. What do you see on the written page? Five, six, gazillion different references on one page. And then go with the back of the book. Then there are other interpretations. Thank you. <laughs> there are other interpretations all over the place in the back of the book that are even more, more there's more verbiage there because the print is very small and it's hard to read. Okay. Right. I mean, so we have did the same, but that that's the nature of culture, and it seems to be a universal thing. Okay, can I now read the text? Can we read the text? Okay, so we're taking a step back. 
open up your Tanakh or your Chumash, please, to Genesis chapter 6. Okay, and we're going to start tonight, today, with verse 5. This is something we read last time, but I want to, I want to start and, and, and focus on this because it, it, it highlights some of the unique features of the, the tradition that's here. So this is chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7, and 8. Okay, our J source. Okay, J source. Okay, which means God is called what? Elohim, right? Nope, the other. I don't know. He's then the other one. <laughs> but it's not L. But it's not L. So this is J tradition, right? J is short for Yud Hey Vav Hey. Remember, these ideas came from Professor Wellhausen when he spoke Deutsch. When by Deutsch, the 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 Y sound is a J. Yeah. You know how you spell wa, ya in German? J-A, ya. Okay. So J is God's name that begins with a yud. And what is that? God's private name, the tetragrammaton, right? Isn't that also where the word Jehovah came from? That's a misinterpretation. Right, I was going to say a misinterpretation, but the J. The J, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, but they didn't understand what they were saying when they said that, because that's actually the vocalization of <clears throat> Adonai under the, that's used for the yod heh vav heh. That means we shouldn't say, we don't know how to pronounce yod heh vav heh. That's an oral tradition that was intentionally not passed down. All right. All right. So, verse chapter 6, read verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. The evil here, who is the cause of the evil in the world? Man. Human beings. Man. We are. And we make it horrible for the, for everybody else. Therefore, God says he's got to destroy all life. And what did God say in verse 6? What did God feel? He was regretted and he was sad. He regretted and he grieved in his heart. All right, this sounds more like a person than it does a God. But am I correct? God hadn't laid out many laws at this point. I mean, this is even before the Noahide laws, isn't it? So how how could people disobey laws? Or maybe this is why God needed to make laws. That's it. No, the fact of the matter is, ultimately, that's the whole purpose. If you If you see the flow of the Torah, Sinai becomes the ultimate solution to everything that precedes it. Of course, then after that is all the disappointment that God had because the people were not listening to what he gave at Sinai, right? But even with laws, even with laws, you don't have people, you still have people who are bad. That's right. The laws, so it doesn't even matter whether there were laws or not that laws that they had bad people. God felt they were all bad people except for Noah. Right at that point in time, right. And but the good part about it is that after the laws were given, not everybody was bad. But there were enough of them to foul things up. That's the reality. And that's why I always say the Jewish people were God's big headache. He loved us. Absolutely loved us. And hated us at the same time. Hated us. He was just very angry at us. 
We were a rebellious child. At, at this point in the story of Noah, there aren't a group designated as Jews. God's just angry with human beings. Right. That's right. Exactly. Right. But the point is those traits within human beings continue even with the Israelites in later, in later times. And that is why they say Jews are like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> You know, what I don't understand is in, in, um, in Parak 7 is that he wants to blot out the birds of the sky. How is a flood supposed to blot out the, the birds of the sky? Is, oh, is, fly forever. Huh? If the earth is covered with water. And they don't have food, is that what we have to assume? And they die from lack of food? Where are they going to land? But why would yeah. God regret making creeping things and birds. They're well, not evil. As he, no, he regretted that he had made man. Man corrupted the whole thing. Okay, it's like today. It's like global warming. Okay, man is corrupting the whole thing. Very similar, actually. We're in for a flood tomorrow, I've heard. Anyway, so, I mean, the point is, It's the recognition of the fact that what human beings do is bigger than just them. That's what this is saying. And the miasma, the the corruption, the corrupting forces that that emanate from humans creep into everything. And so you got to start over. That's the whole point here. That was what they believed. And to a certain degree, yeah, I mean, you know, remember, um, this is a. I'm jumping way ahead here, but think think of of the story of Jonah, right? So he goes to Nineveh, this horrible, sinful city, right? It's the Las Vegas of antiquity, and God threatens, right? Noah, you know, the whole point there was that Jonah was to say that he's going to destroy the city, and I won't go into the whole story. But who is held? Who has to make teshuva in that story? It's a, it's a one line. It's a few words. But who puts on sackcloth and ashes? Who? The people of Nineveh, right? And the animals, the cattle. They put on sackcloth and ashes too. It says so in the story. What's the implication? How did these guys get fouled up? Because of the humans. It spreads. It's the same mentality. Have you ever made that connection before? Now you have it. I've never focused on the animals putting on sackcloth and ashes. Read it. Okay. (laughs) The cattle put on sackcloth and ashes. Okay. And at the end, it says, it, it, in the, in, when they talk about the city, they says, after all, this is a city of many with a great population and a lot of cattle. So they're part of the group. So they were affected by it, too. I mean, there is a horrible sin that humans can get involved with, you know, that does relate to animals, guys. What am I talking about? Bestiality. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, 
That, that may be what they have in mind. I don't know. Or it could be this amorphous kind of, you know, it's, it's COVID. <laughs> it's spread by touch. All right. Whatever. But that's the notion that they have. I'm, I'm thinking more that spread of disease is certainly a variable. Tyvo wants to talk. Yeah. Okay. Tybal. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. It's just short. I said this before. Now I remember the first session, somebody, or maybe the second, someone reminded me who it was. Thank you, that person. But Judy Klitzner of Pardes has a book about sequels in the Bible, and she connects Noah and Jonah for many of these reasons. So people who are struck by that may want to get the book. It's called, it's got subversive sequels in the title. Very nice. Good. Very good. Yeah. All right. But then, so, but again, I want to mention, and, and I harp on this because it is a, a definition of this, of the God of P, of, of, of J, I'm sorry. And this is the same thing that we saw in the second chapter of Genesis. Regretted, right? Regretted. It means he had a change of mind. The Hebrew, the Hebrew here is Vayinachem. I'm looking at the first word of verse six. Vayinachem. All right. Means he regretted. It means he had a change of heart. That verb nunchet mem does not mean only to comfort. Right. We use it for comforting a lot, but it means actually to have a change of disposition. So God had a change of disposition with regard. God changed. Right. He changed his, his, his optimistic outlook for the creatures flipped into pessimism. So if God is perfect and knows everything, how can God, I guess, make a mistake? Okay, God, remember, remember the creation account. God says it is not good for man to be alone, right? And who made him alone? God. And then God brings a, brings helpmates, right, for Adam. And who did he bring? The animals. And he said he didn't find an animal there. Well, who was it that tried, tried to, 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 to make that solution work? God. And here God regretted. It's the same God. This is the J God. This is a God that's very, this is the God that people love. Because this is the God that can be a warm fuzzy. This is the God that can be close to you, that you can turn to in prayer, right? This is the God that emotes like we do. This is a very human-like God. That's called anthropomorphism, although morph really talks more about bodies, but it's the same notion. Characteristics. This is the J God. So it comes with pluses and minuses theologically, all right? And this, this was a very attractive, I mean, this, this concept, by the way, opened the door to Christianity because the people in the first century of the common era into the second were horribly confused about the nature of gods because in the Middle East in particular, throughout the Roman Empire, there are all kinds of theologies were bouncing back and forth. And this is not my discovery. Their books have been written on this for for decades, and and it it was confusing. 
And most of the time, these gods, you know, were out there somewhere, unreachable. You needed to go through the priests, make all these sacrifices. And suddenly along comes these people saying, no, I can pray to God. God's here with me, right? God is right here. Those were the Jews. So Judaism became an attractive religion. But was lacking was a physical expression of the closeness of this God. So Paul woke up one morning and said, I got it. It's through Jesus. And hence you have Christianity. But it was this, it was, it was the, the need for an imminent God, a God whose presence could be felt outside those temples that were run by the priests. Nobody could go into the temples. The priests did. But if God is beyond the temples, He's here. Now, we as Jews incorporated that into our homes, into our lives. We confront God all the time. And we've taught that over time, right? I had I put a mezuzah on somebody's business because he wanted to feel that God was in his business. I said, only if you have an honest business. Otherwise, God's going to leave. He said, absolutely. Okay. But I mean, that, that notion is very Jewish. I mean, yeah, there are Christians who believe in that too. But we don't need the human expression of God in order to accomplish this. Okay, but that was a need in the pagan world. Anyway, so that's why Christianity spread. They wanted a a God that could love them, care for them, hug them, kiss them. Okay? But at the same time, this is what happens. Or this is what happened. So this this God changes his mind, yes. So then he's going to... Blot out man and everybody else. Or again, I regret that I made them. That same verb pops up again twice now in two sentences. God grieves. He has an emotion. He's sorry. This is really painful, but I got to do it. Right? It's, it's the old notion when the, as the parent is punishing the kid, this is, this is, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, in this case, not quite. However, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Does it say why? No. But he found favor. It was up to God. Okay. So now we're going to begin chapter 7. Okay. No, we're not. We're going to look at verse. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm looking. I got two separate pieces of paper here. So, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a little sedrate uh, here. All right. Now we're going to look at verse 9, and and from there, and that, now we're going to jump into P-land. This is the break in the Sedra here. We're getting into the new Sedra. Yeah, sometimes the breaks pick up on that. Sometimes they don't, as you'll see. All right. So now it begins with a statement that is really borrowed, we are told, from a redactor put it in. The the Bible scholars today believe that there existed these books of generations, which were literally, um, you know, uh, uh, the the story, the family trees of ancient uh, ancient families, particularly the biblical families, and they had these these just lists. So and so begot so and so, which you find in these chapters in Genesis, right? And there are different kinds of these things. Jay had their own mini tradition of this, but these traditions probably emanated from priestly sources because they were the, remember, they were the accountants. They kept the lists. They kept the records in antiquity. And, and these may actually have been written down. Okay. 
And because there are certain things, this is Zeh Sefer or something. This is the book. Some of these times it's actually included with the word a scroll. It was written down. So here already you have in biblical times the writing, the written records of the names of people. So going back, Bert, to what you raised before, you can see here that there's already a transition into writing things down to store information. Okay, so these are the generations of Noah. Now, Noah ish tzaddik, tamim haya bedorotav, et ha-elohim hitalech Noah. Okay, Noah was a righteous man. He was perfect in his generations. Noah walked with whom? With Adonai? No, he walked with Elohim. This is our Mr. J writing here. God is called Elohim, according to the J traditions. The name Israelite, the name the name Adonai was not known among the Israelites until the time of Moses. I think you mean um, Elohim, isn't that the E tradition? The no. J tradition is yud You're right. right. Partially, yes. Of the two non-P traditions, the Elohim is the E tradition. Now, these are true. The E tradition, even that is something that people dispute today. Not, But it's pretty much accepted. This is a J-like God, but who's called Elohim. In other words, the, the J.E. traditions often get stuck together because they're very similar. I think what the, the scholars suggest is that the the J may be more emotive, okay? More, more anthropomorphic. You were just going over that in the last few verses about J being the God you hug yeah. and more anthropomorphic. Right, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so, but yes, the E tradition is different from the J tradition, but the J also, they agree, both the E and the J traditions seem to agree that the Israelites did not know yud heh until the time of Moses, because there's a statement that God says to Moses in chapter 6 of Exodus, that they knew is the the patriarchs knew me as El Shaddai, not as Adonai. Now I reveal Adonai, and that's when Moses asked him, "What's your name? What does he say?" I will be what I will be. This is earlier, right before that. This is in chapter two, uh, two or three, right? Moses asked God, "What what's your name?" So he says, "What do I tell them?" Maybe it's four. You know, this is when Moses is at the burning bush. So he says, so whom do I say I should, who, who's sending me? So he says, eh, yeah. No, eh, yeah, I will be what I will be. So he says, okay, so what's your name? Just tell him, eh, yeah, sent me. All right, but there is a relationship between the word, eh, yeah, and the four-letter word of God, name of God, right? The the verb, hayo. Hey, Yud, Hey is present in both. And Hey, Yud, Hey means what? To exist. So Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey has something to do with existence. And that's a great name for a God because it's totally, what does it mean? I don't know. But that's the point. You can't. That's God. Elohim already is picking up on pagan terms. Remember, pagan terms. 
which refer to gods. Because it means. Yeah, I mean, because it's plural. Is that uh, yes, it's a, a pagan aspect of Elohim? Yes, it's plural. But the, the but the Bible repurposes it by associating it only with singular verbs. So it's a one thing. I'm of the school of thought, you heard me say this before, that Elohim was chosen by these ancient sources because it meant that anything you could ascribe to the totality of the pagan pantheons is wrapped up in one God. So this is the sum total of divine power is in this one God, and that's the end, and that's the end of it. So I think that's why I think the plural caught on. And it was very powerful. And it has an association with the term, the concept of power. There's a term, his hands are strong. It's God. There's God in his hands. It means he's powerful. So this, 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 this all purpose God is powerful. So those, so those terms were very attractive to the ancient Israelites. So they repurposed them. All right. So here it's Elohim. Okay. All right, so Noah was righteous. He walked with God. Good. Now, again, the J tradition doesn't say this. All it says is Noah found favor in God's eyes. So this is a nice, this is good, right? This concept of righteousness, it's nice to see that. Well, I would hope that that's something that a priest would say, right? Values. He may have been righteous, but he didn't argue with God about destroying the whole world. Well, neither one did. I'm neither version. You're right. Right. Not like Abraham, who was actually arguing for people that were not part of his people. Exactly. But it may be nobody. I, I know that's a whole discussion there. That that's why that's why Abraham is greater than Noah, right? Because uh, you're right. But the but the point is, based upon what what we're going to read, we will see that there was nothing to argue about. <laughs> A righteous person would be fully aware of how corrupt the world has come. Okay. And you're living in the midst of it. Abraham did not live in, in Sodom and Amorah. Right. So he could, he was distant from it. He could argue about the principle. Think about it. Nobody ever discusses this. Abe didn't live there. He was out in the desert. Right. But you have, you have the same issue here where the innocent will die with the guilty. But the impression one gets is there were no innocents. I mean, that's what the Torah is trying to get across here. It got to the point where it's not, it's like the, in Deuteronomy, we read about the Irnidachat, right? The, the city that has got to be destroyed. And the point there is that it's a city where the, the, the population has the, the overriding, the over, the overriding majority of the population there is evil. And you just can't change it. And the evil there is presumed to be idolatry. So you have a town that's idolatrous, wipe them out. That's Deuteronomy. And this is Israelites. Okay, so there's that same, that it, it's the same, uh, what will I say? It, it's not a compromising position. Okay. All right, time. Oh, got time. Good. All right. Now, of course, there's another difference. Right away, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Okay, this is going to pop up later on after the flood, but we already know he's got kids. This is not mentioned anywhere. It's mentioned 
the 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 the, the J tradition will talk about Noah and his family, his wife and his family. Doesn't mention their names. Okay, names listing of names is something that was big in the priestly traditions. They remember I said before they were accountants, they were detail guys, right? They are into minute minutia. They're they're generally speaking, this is going to play out in these two accounts, and that's the reason why they're they're put together. But on the other hand, you're going to see that that there's a couple of instances here where actually J has more details than does P, but it's it's few and far between. All right, moving on, verse 11. <clears throat> the earth, the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was full of, of well, the, the best interpretation I found is violence. JPS has lawlessness. Another tradition I have here is robbery. No. Kellerbaum, I, I always defer to, to the KB dictionary, the, the red and black one that I hold up from time to time. They are very clear. That means violence. And what's the word? Very timely. Hamas. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Which, think about it. It's prophetic, right? I mean, especially after what happened in October, right? I mean, anyway. The world is filled with Hamas, with violence. That's what this says. Okay. Uh, the other one, it was, you know, the human beings create evil in their hearts. It, it's the, the evil of the human being. Here it, it takes a step further, it says the whole world is violent. Everything. It doesn't just blame human beings. So here it rationalizes from the get go why everything has to be destroyed. Right. The question that was asked before, I guess, Bert, you asked it. Why? What about the innocent animals here? There's no such thing. Nothing's innocent. Everything except for Noah and his family, because they were righteous people. OK, so therefore, the world is filled again. Hamas, verse 13, he's got to destroy. Is that, word, is that word Hamas, excuse me, the same as with the way you would spell Hamas that we're fighting? I don't know how, uh, I don't know. It must be. Yeah, it has because to be. Then that would say that, that they were unlawful, they're lawless. No, no, no. The name Hamas has, it's an abbreviation for something in Arabic. It's not. Oh, okay. Well, that's what I wanted to know. They call themselves Hamas. Huh? They call themselves Hamas. That's not an Israeli invention. Right. And it's an abbreviation for something. It's an abbreviation. Okay. And I'm not sure what. All right. <clears throat> Anyhow, so now Noah says, God says to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me because the earth is corrupt. Okay. Because of them, well, all flesh, all flesh have corrupted the earth, not just humans. So I'm going to destroy them. Now we find something that we do not find. Again, you're talking about information that we don't have in the other tradition. Make for yourself a selacha tevat atse gofer kinim ta'aset ateva vechafarta oto mibayet umichutz ba kofer. Okay? So make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make the ark with compartments. Cock it both inside and out with pitch. 
Do we have any idea what gopher wood is? Is it, do we have anything like it today or? Absolutely no idea. I didn't. Uh, the commentary says it's like cypress. Huh? The commentary says it's like cypress. Like cypress. That was used widely in shipbuilding in ancient times because of its resistance to rot. Thank you. That was Dr. Bob Mass. Thank you, Bob. I didn't know that. Cyprus. Okay. There you go. It's in its time. It's in the commentary in its time. Thank you. All right. So, um, so that's that. Um, what, what was I going to say? Yes. So, a teva. That word, teva. What does it mean, a teva? That's what Moses was in as well. Isn't it a little boat? Yeah. Doesn't it refer to the ark? It, right. No. Teva. And this is a teva. And it's also used as a box in which the scrolls were kept. Okay. So a teva is a box. It is not a boat. It's a box. So an aron is a specialized teva. What we're, we're talking about a, spe- a, a giant teva, <laughs> giant box. It's rectangular, as you will see in a moment where the, he's going to, the, 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 the P tradition will spell out all the dimensions, right? The details. That's good old P talking here, right? But it's interesting that it, it, you know, some people think it was a, some kind of a boat. Now it, it's more like a barge than a boat, right? Not a boat. A boat. What's, what does a boat have that a barge doesn't have? A boat has sails. A boat can navigate. A boat can be directive. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, and it has a keel and a rudder. <laughs> exactly. it ha- and it has a point in the front. Right? I was say, the front is pointed and the back is usually plain. Exactly. So the propel- propulsion of a motorized one is the mo- motors in the back or if it's a, a sailboat, the motorized, it's in the wind, in the, in the sails. The front's got a point because you got to point it in a certain direction. You want it to move through the waters in a direction. Through the water. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, but you're not talking about this here because there's no direction. Where are you going to go in the flood? <laughs> it's the same thing like with the birds. You go from point A to point B. There ain't no point B. It's all underwater. You're going to float. You're in a box. I see your hand, Bobby, just a second. I remember once, you know, you always find these these kooky Bible people who want to try to prove everything in the Bible is true. So for a while, they were passing around online a picture of Mount Ararat taken from above. And they say, you see, you can see the outline of a boat on the top of the mountain and the boat and, and the outline of it, you know, of, of the boat was a boat shaped thing, right? With a point in the front, right? Like a boat. And they said, you see, that proves because that proves that Noah's Ark is real. It's on the top of Mount Ararat. And of course the answer is they didn't build a boat. They built a box. It wasn't a boat. Okay, so teva is used in the Torah only 
or um, the person, for this kind of teva is used for Moses and for the for the ark of, of Noah. And they're identical in the sense that they were, you know, the outside was sealed with a sealant of some kind. It was a box. You put it on the water and it floats. And wherever the current takes it, that's where it goes. Okay, Bob. Well, you already said it. Okay. Okay. Okay, so here you go. Now let's look at verse 15. Now we're going to see, now keep in mind, we're going to see explicit dimensions here. So here you go. The size you shall make it, 300 cubits, the length of the ark, 50 cubits, its breadth, and 30 cubits, its height. What is a cubit? Right. Isn't that the elbow thing? From the elbow to the tip of your fingers. That's a cubit, right. Normally they say about 18 inches, give or take, but you know, everybody's arm is different. All right. A man's cubit though, Rabbi. Bars, everything is. Yeah, man. <laughs> All right. Anyhow. Um, <clears throat> so that's the size of it. 300 long, right? 50 cubits in breadth and 30 cubits in height. You can figure it out if you want in feet, but I'm not, not important. The point is you have here very explicit dimensions of a rectangle, right? Now, do you know another priestly, where is another place in the Torah? where you Actually get, not, excuse me, not actually not a rectangle, but a cube. This is not. A, yes, it is. It's got length, no, width, no, and height. That's no, a cube. Three dimensions. Oh, I, because, yeah. But a cube is normally, isn't a cube equidistant on all sides? No, no. You can have all kinds of different sizes of cubes. All right. Well, yes, you can. Yes, you can. A cube is three dimensional. It's a three. A rectangular is two dimensions. I know. I got it. I'm gonna... it's, it's one dimension, really, but that's why it's two. Yeah, okay. Got it. Okay. Thank you. That's what it is. The arc, uh, I looked up the uh, cubit in feet. It would have been over 500 feet long. You could fit three space shuttles in it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Good. Yes, indeed. Now, um, where is another place that we find very explicit uh, dimensions? Construction of the temple. Of the, well, that's... Mishkan. 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 Right, in the Torah. That is correct. The tabernacle. Very precise, right? Same thing. This width, this high, this, etc. Yes, and in Solomon's temple as well. It's interesting to note that those are priestly edifices, aren't they? All right, so there you go. I mean, it's that same kind of approach, very precise, right? And even to the point when you get into the Mishkan, the various articles, many of them are actually defined by height and width and so forth and so on. Exact numbers, how many of this, how many of that, how many rings, how many pipes, how many, you know, whatever they are. So this 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 obsession with detail, it's part of the priestly job, right? It's part of the priestly job. I mean, it's carried out today. Now there, you could say 
that this is all precise because these are the implements. This is the implement for saving lives, right? And that was the will of God. Got to save lives and start over. So there's a sacred task involved here, right? The same thing with the, with the tabernacle. That's God's palace on earth. Like any royal palace, it's got to be defined and, and set up precisely to, to satisfy the needs and the glory of the king. That's what it's about. And Solomon's temple had that same notion. And Herod's temple actually had that same notion. All right, there's glorious temples. And look, there was a big debate as to what to do with Notre Dame, with the cathedral in Notre Dame after the fire, right? Do you want to spend all those millions and millions of euros on rebuilding or perhaps just leave it that way in remembrance, blah, 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 so we can educate kids, feed the poor, build housing, whatever. So what came first? Rebuilding the the Rebuilding the temple, so to speak. So that's a, that's an ongoing argument. Tybal. Since you said Herod, I thought I would toss in quickly that it, scholars believe that there are some sources that say that Herod is the one that destroyed all or most of those biblical genealogies because his grandparents were Idumenian converts and he, he didn't want that known that he didn't descend from those families. Well, I don't know. What, what, what records are you talking about? Um, it's not it's not in our sacred text, but there's some historical thing. Uh, I don't remember offhand. Just since I teach genealogy, geneal- genealogical fun facts stick in my head, and that thing about Herod being an Idumenian convert, and that's why we don't have them. I'm not surprised. It could be. <clears throat> On the other hand, you know, there was a lot of burning of things in the temple area by the Romans. So. You know, one could argue that they were destroyed there too, but all right, I don't, I don't know enough about it to be able to comment, but it makes sense. It makes sense. All right. Anyhow, so details that that's the thing here. You're dealing with divine stuff here. God says that's the way you got to do it. That's what they believe. They did it. Okay. So, all right. Then you need to make a skylight. You need some sunlight in there, right? And the cubit from the top and the entrance to show the place on the side and bottom compartments, second story compartments, third story compartments. This all these very, very precise details. Animals, you're gonna have plenty of room. You probably don't want to put the lions in with the goats. So, you know, you're gonna make sure that each play each each variety has its own space so it could be safe and so forth and so on. All right, and there's got to be room for food also. Okay, so this is a major project. Okay, again, there's no indication that J has any interest. And generally, when you read the J sources, with a few exceptions, and there will be a couple of exceptions here, but generally speaking, J is not concerned about these things as much because they're not priests. They may have been, but I mean, they're priests of a different orientation. They have their own approaches to things, the J tradition. By the way, I'm jumping to the end. We'll read about this next time. The end of the P, the J tradition on this is a, the offering of sacrifices 
Interesting. The offering of sacrifices. The plea tradition, you would think being a plea tradition, not have the offering of sacrifices. That's the rainbow. Turns out that if you read the J traditions very often, a covenanting process involves sacrifices. When the, when Moses brings the Torah down to the people on Sinai, he has sacrifices being offered, right? He sets, sets up 12 altars down below and the sacrifice, it was 12 stones representing the 12 tribes and they offer sacrifices and he sprinkles blood all over the place because very often you cut the covenant. The Hebrew word is lichrot brit, to cut a covenant. The cutting can often is expressed itself in the cutting of animals for sacrifices and then eating them and having a sacred meal. And that's what happens at Sinai. Okay, so this, this, there's no mention in, interesting thing is, there's no mention in the J tradition of a covenant. That is mentioned in the P tradition in chapter nine with respect to the rainbow. So the question is, would it not have been reasonable to assume that the P tradition would have been interested in having a sacrifice, given that they represent the priesthood? And I don't, I have not seen this discussed. Um, I have a thought, which I'll share with you, and then stop. So you can take it or leave it, all right? I think that the priests did not want to see sacrifices here because it was before Torah, because it was before God authorized the use of sacrifices as a means of worship. Okay, The P tradition has the story of Cain and Abel. I'm sorry. Yay. The J source is the story of Cain and Abel. There's a sacrifice is offered from the get-go, right, to the sons of Adam. This is Noah now, okay, generations later. Sacrifice. The priests are interested in sacrifices God with the temple. And they I don't think they want to encourage us to, and, and the, it begins, and here the priests would, would be happy with this. At Sinai, great. Sinai, because that is the covenanting. That's, that's all the domain of God. That's the mountain of God. That's like a temple. So you can offer sacrifices there. This is not. And the question is, would God mandate sacrifice before Torah is given? Um, so my suggestion is from the priestly perspective, it is imp- the first time that the people of Israel are given permission to offer an animal, you know, is from the, and the, the priests probably would have approved this, would be the Korban Pesach, right? And that is a specific kind of sacrifice for the specific purpose. And I don't, I don't think that's a J tradition. I don't think, but I don't think the priests would be bothered by it. That's part of a sacred action, which is the exodus from Egypt. And that's part of God's activity uh, in dealing with the Egypt. Right? It's for protective purposes. Now, whether the priests would, you know, I, I don't know if they, I'll, I'll double check for that. That's not a P tradition. But the point is, they would be okay with that. But to have these 
non-Israelite folks offering sacrifices like this. I don't know that they'd be so happy with that. So I think that's why they didn't incorporate it. I would have thought if they're talking about making a covenant between God and the you know and Noah, that there would have been a sacrifice because that's part of the service. But there isn't. It's the rainbow. Just a thought. All right, we're stopping. I have another lesson I have to give at two o'clock. So we're stopping here. All right, so we will continue. <clears throat> well, final, verse 17. And I, and I, behold, I am bringing the flood water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is the spirit of life from the, beneath the heavens. All that is upon the earth will perish. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.